Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ben Holland. It's June 13th, 2022. Uh, we're at uh, Linfield University Nicholson Library. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, first question to start us off is why wine? Well, uh, I ended up into it pretty randomly. I was uh, my first year after my first year of college, and um, I just finished baling hay for the season and signed up with the Kelly Temps, and they sent me onto the bottling line. I had a friend who was, who'd been bottling for a couple weeks at Soko Blosser, and he's like, hey, they give miners wine. <laughs> <laughs> they let us leave with low fills. And so we, um, we loved it. You know, I spent a couple weeks on the bottling line. They were coming up on harvest and asked me if I wanted to join the team, and that was 1994, and uh, I worked a harvest. Saw the international interns working three months on, three months off, and switching hemispheres. And I thought that'd be a pretty good plan. Mm -hmm. um, I had never heard of winemaking. Like growing up in McMinnville, it was not something that was put to us as a career path. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, my whole family were teachers. My um, parents and grandparents and siblings and cousins, they're all teachers. And so I pretty much, um, in high school, I was planning on joining the military and um, was kept out because of uh, eczema. <laughs> and so grad my senior year, my plans changed and I hadn't applied to any of the universities or anything. And so I ended up at community college and kind of uh, drifting through liberal arts, you know, psychology, English major kind of stuff. Um, and then that, that first harvest in 94 kind of sparked my interest. I continued half-assed kind of going to school in 95 and 96. Um, 96 I worked another harvest at Soko Blosser and midway, th man, near the end of the school year in 97, I had a good friend come to me and say, Ben, this is ridiculous. We're both wasting our time here. We could make a good duo. Um, and so we went one day in the spring. We hit 15 wineries with our, he had also worked a couple harvests before with me. And so we both had a couple harvests under our belt. And we went around during the spring, hit about 15 wineries in a day, all the way from Eugene to Newburgh. And we ended up getting a lot of offers, mm -hmm. part-time offers, and we worked, spread ourselves around during that summer, and we both ended up picking teams. Um, we ended up with two wineries basically offering us both positions and leaving it to us to pick who was gonna go where. I ended up at Shehalem, and he went to Erath, and um, since 97, that's been what I've been doing. Tell me about the the first harvest experience for you. What was the first harvest like? Oh, 
It was mind blowing. The, the extents that we went to to get the job done and the things that we were asked to do, I, I didn't know that people did those kinds of things. Um, just, it was all, all the machines and all the sanitation and all of the, all of the variables that go into making a great wine. I had no idea that it was so in, involved. You know, and that that was happening on the scale that it was happening on all these hills around Dundee and Amity, and it had been going on for decades, and I had no idea. Um, and how important it was also really struck me, like how significant it was to the um, to the rest of the world. When I went to France in '96 to visit a girl, um, I brought a couple of bottles of Oregon. Pinot with me and a six pack of uh, Black Butte Porter. And it blew their mind. They had no idea that wines of this quality were coming from Oregon and the beer of that quality was being made in the United States. Um, and I was struck by how impressed they were. I, I didn't think that being a winemaker was anything significant. I thought it was just, it's like being a grass farmer or something. Um, but it struck me that these were people who respected me as an artist and as a craftsman, and I, I enjoyed that. I liked taking pride in my work and doing something that was significant. Um, Winemaking feels like a little bit of a historical project in, in as much as you're, you're bottling up a season and a winemaker's vision and all the team that has gone into it and, and you're preserving it for posterity. Mm -hmm. And that was a neat idea for me. I had never thought of that or it had never occurred to me. That and, and the pairing of, of wine and food, they fed us really well that first harvest and which was, I had never eaten like that before in my <laughs> life. My, my parents and my family were very, um, yeah, they're, they're very health conscious and we had lots of fresh vegetables and home canned stuff, but we were far, far, far from gourmet. Mm -hmm. um, my dad would be out working in the garage while dinner is cooking and getting overcooked and, you know, we didn't know that food could be like what I was experiencing at these um, really amazingly well-prepared dishes that were put in front of us. And they're preparing, and they're pairing them with with wines and and, um, and spirits. You know, I had never drank wine before, like out of anything other than a, out of a box. You know, my parents would maybe let me try a little bit, and I hated it. You know, I had never experienced enjoying wine and food together. So that was revolutionary to me to begin to develop a palate. So I'm curious about sort of the idea of sort of wine education for you. Obviously, you, you went into it and you started working in it. How long did it take you to start to understand both wine as a product, but also like wine as a process? How long did it take you to sort of get how wine was made and, and, and start, to, start to understand like the, intric the intricacies of like the, the, the taste, the nuances of the taste? By the end of that first harvest, I was able to discern different varietals reliably. They were constantly tasting. Every day we were tasting juices and wines. Um, it was baffling to me the transformation from juice to wine and that, that took a decade or so before I could reliably evaluate juice quality and predict 
final wine quality. That's probably the hardest part of the job is to tell anything about what the final wine is going to taste like by tasting the juice. Mm -hmm. um, as the years have gone by, I can do it now by looking at the grapes. I can tell these grapes are going to make good wine and those won't. In a lot of cases, you can't always tell. Sometimes grapes that look horrible, you'll be like, wow, this made an amazing wine out of. And we have a lot of tricks. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until 97, though, when I worked at Shehalem with uh, Harry Peterson Nedry, who was he, he's a real science nerd. And um, that was the moment when I realized I needed to learn about viticulture in order to be a good winemaker. And in 2000, I actually started in at the Chemeketa Wine Studies program. And when they, I was in the first class that they had. Because in 97, a course didn't exist. There was no training any outside of UC Davis or France or New Zealand. And I think there's an institute in Australia at that time too. So there's like four wine schools in the world that, for the, in the, you know, that were respected and would get you a job, and I wasn't about to go to any of those at that time. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about UC Davis as a realistic option because I didn't have thirty thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and I wasn't going to get a scholarship. Um, but once the program started at Schmeckeda, that was a realistic option, and I, I jumped right on that and continued working. You know, it was difficult to go through that, you know, I'm, I'm taking two or three classes at a time and working full time and trying to stay afloat, you know, because none of this work pays. It, it doesn't pay. Back then I was making seven, eight bucks an hour, you know, to drive the tractor, to, to clean the hoses, to, to mix the wines, to fill the barrels, to filter the wine and, and all. It's, it's, it's insane the way the job works, like I'm doing today. 25 years later, the same job that I did when I was 18 years old. It's the same job. I'm just much better at it. <laughs> I haven't, they didn't hold back just because I was green. Like they threw you at everything. There was, everyone did everything from the winemaker to the greenhorn. And there wasn't any task that was too complicated or too intricate or too important. No, you need to learn how to do this. Um, th that's where I learned so many of the techniques and um, mechanical kinds of things. And then I would spend the evenings at, at class. Most of the classes were night classes. I didn't ever have day classes. It was always formatted so that people could be working. Mm -hmm. And so I would you know, learn techniques and what to do during the day and then learn a lot of the why you know, in, at night and get my questions answered. Um, my career has been split about evenly between the vineyard and the cellar. And in the vineyard, Spanish is crucial to having a, a real understanding of the techniques of, of what people are doing. And I didn't have that at the beginning. Um, one of the courses I took was Spanish in the vineyard, which was very helpful. Um, so I would get a lot of questions during the daytime and then get my viticulture questions answered at night by the, by the lab guys you know, and get a lot more technical answers, but I'd learned just as much during the day. You know, you can tell a lot just by seeing what the people are doing. Like I didn't, the language problem was never a problem for telling me what to do, right? I, there wasn't a lot of talking. It's like today we're doing this. Your row needs to look like this when you're done with it. 
and if it wasn't, you know, if I thought that I was getting it but I wasn't, somebody would come back and tell me after a few vines and say, listen, you need to take more or you need to go faster. You're doing too good of a job, right? You need to, we're, don't, don't worry about the stuff that's on the head. We're just doing the stuff on the wire. We're going to come back and get the stuff on the head in a second pass and all of this kind of, you know, managing of the workforce to get the job done that, is, that we're here to do. It was sometimes difficult for me because I'd, I'd be standing in front of a vine and I know that X, Y, and Z tasks need to be done, but we're only doing X right now. And Y and Z are later. Or not, it's all budgeting and it's, it's not your call, Ben. So there's a lot of stuff that you just have to learn what, how it works you know, and, and learn the system. It, it took a while, but like, once you get it, you get it. And mm -hmm. I was able to keep up and be as fast as anyone on that crew. Usually, by the end of it, I was the fastest because I always felt like I had something to prove. Mm -hmm. You know, there was there was a lot of uh, machismo kind of stuff where, at the beginning, nobody wanted me to be faster than them. Mm -hmm. You know, they come in and they see me on the crew. I'm the only white guy around, and they're like, "I will not be beaten by him. No matter how old and slow this guy is, he's going to work his ass off to stay ahead of me." And then after a while, you know, as I proved myself, they would they would begin to you know, let up and everyone's working at their normal pace and we all just kind of finished together and it was fine. Part of the team at that yeah, point. Yeah, but they were highly competitive at the beginning. It felt like the rest of the teams, you know, several teams were like that. I would see it. Tell me about the difference uh, from, obviously your first experiences at Sokol Blosser, going to Shehalem, Shehalem next. Tell me about the differences for you there, both in terms of your role and in terms of just the overall operation. What, what did you still have to learn when you got to Shehalem? Well, it was, in the beginning there, you know, Sokol Blosser was a pretty large scale wine production doing a small amount of high-end stuff. Um, at Shehalem, it was all high-end stuff. And so you have also the clientele. Um, Shehalem's not open to the public. And so the people that come there are there with an appointment and they're usually highly qualified. Um, sometimes there was investors or there, there was a lot more pressure to create the impression of, of quality. Mm -hmm. And to, I, I don't know that that Sokol Blosser was necessarily a lower quality product, right? I'm sure that everyone's best stuff is, you know, top shelf. But they were a lot more concerned about appearance at the high-end places that I worked. And Shehalem was just one of many. I've probably been on staff at 40 or 50 wineries. I don't even have a count anymore because it was a matter of keeping your book full and so I would be on payroll at eight to nine at a time. Eight, eight to nine and, um, you know, I would I would get a two-week job here and three days there, and they would call you maybe as little as a day before the the gig, and they'd say, "Hey, can you come tomorrow?" And if you said no once, they didn't call you anymore. Mm -hmm. So you had to be available. And there was a number of places where I would just be like, "Listen, I, I'm working for these guys already. I, can you reschedule?" It? And I would, sometimes they would, you know, they would reschedule, and but sometimes they wouldn't, and they just wouldn't call you anymore, and you know, I don't work for them anymore. Mm -hmm. But usually I would be able to manage these relationships and stay on crew, like at Argyle for a number of years, I would go in and be their night guy when they did night shift for two weeks out of the year. They'd be like, okay, it's time for night shift again, call our night crew. And like, that's the only two weeks out of the year I would ever work there. 
and be for overnight, yeah. uh, you know, and just various different relationships. You you know a guy and he's like, yeah, well, I need some help with this. And then you work into a full-time gig, you know, or Harvest would come around and a, a common ploy they would use, or they would say, okay, we're, we're hiring five people for Harvest maybe someone's going to get a job at the end of it. Mm -hmm. They would dangle that possibility. It was never a guarantee for anyone, you know, and half the time a foreigner would get it, you, you know, some, someone from France or New Zealand. Or, th these people are good marketing. Uh, people like to go to a winery and see someone with a foreign accent working in the cellar or behind the tasting room or whatever. I, I got out-competed by a lot of people that were foreign that just, you know, Get out competed. Mm -hmm. um, I am not sure, and I'm, I haven't pursued the clay, but I haven't met anyone from Oregon that started before me. Like, I think I'm the first McMinnville High School graduate to be in the wine industry. I, don't, I haven't met anyone from Mac High that graduated before me that started before I did. I, I used to be proud of that, but now it just means I'm the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> Changing perspective. It was I was a, a you know cutting edge trendsetter in the '90s, and now I'm just an old, old guy. <laughs> Working for that many different places and for that many different kinds of just those kinds of quick jobs here and there, or, or annual, like you said, annual for a couple of weeks. Um, how do you manage expectations for all those different places? How do you kind of keep and keep on, keep tabs on who you're working for, what the goal is, what your style's supposed to be, right. even what you're doing in a day? I've been amazed at how consistent the demands for quality are. Nobody thinks that they're low end. And even if you're making an $8 bottle of Pinot, their demands for sanitation and performance are just as stringent. They believe that they're just as stringent. And when you look at the, you know, yes, everyone is striving for quality, even the low priced bulk producers. I was expected to, to have standard sanitation protocols that have been across the board. Every winery is the same as far as they want their hoses clean before it touches any wine. They want the tanks clean. They want everything clean before it touches any wine. And so that served me really well to have a basic set of standards that are the same across the board. I work one way, whether I'm working for Domain Serene or whether I'm working for Stone Wolf. I go in and I do high-end work. We only make high-end wine in Oregon, as far as I'm concerned, because I haven't met people that, there are people that, that pop up in the wine industry that are not quality producers. They don't last. They get fired quickly, and they don't get rehired, you know, or they get killed. There are, there's deaths every year of operators, and I don't blame them, but that is one sure way to kill yourself is to operate in a sloppy fashion or to kill someone else. And people don't want dangerous, low-quality operators in their facility. It's a liability, and they get them out. With all the different kinds of work you were doing, did you have a preference? If you were, if you were given your, your choice, what, what kind of work would you like to do? Yeah, um, it's been interesting too because I, I spent the last three years solely in the vineyard and I loved the work, but it is definitely 
hard to do the same thing every day for weeks at a time, like on the body. I don't care if you're just doing this. You do it 20,000 times and you're hurt. So I, it's not so much any one particular job, it's being able to move between jobs that, that I prefer. You know, do this for a few days, do this for a few days, or in a day you might spend a couple hours on this task and then a couple hours on this task. And that's one of the neat things about working in a cellar is that there's frequently a, a huge variety of different tasks to do. And in my current environment, I get to kind of take my pick. There's three of us and we kind of divvy up the day's work based on our strengths and weaknesses. And I have a pretty sweet day these days. Um, you know, bottling is tedious it, it, and I really didn't like it in my youth. But as I've gotten more contemplative and philosophical, you know, I kind of enjoy just standing there for, for a couple days, you know? I don't think I'd like to do it for a couple of weeks, but sometimes it's nice to just stand there and shut your brain off. And you're not really shutting your brain off because you're always hypervigilant about the machine. Mm -hmm. You know, is, is the capsule straight? Is the label straight? Are we out of that? Um, but we, we split those responsibilities amongst the management of the bottling line and, and you watch that end of the line, I'll watch this end of the line and we'll keep our workers safe in between us. Um, bottling is probably my least favorite task, but it's short lived. And uh, you know, nowadays I have my earbud and I keep one ear for the machine and one ear for me and keep the volumes managed. Because you always have to listen to the machine. Nobody can put two earbuds in. If you're going to have hearing protection, then you're going to put an earplug in one ear and maybe your earbud in the other ear, but you're not going to have two earbuds because you need to be able to hear when the machine fails. And it's bottling, so the machine is probably going to fail it's at some point. Fail. Eventually. If the machine doesn't fail, then the operator will. <laughs> you know, somebody will put the glass on in the wrong place or do something silly. So in your time in the industry, uh, tell me about some of the places you've worked at, either for length of time or, or, or consistently, um, and some of, the, some of the roles, kind of the, the, the roles you've held there. All right, so I was just the seller hand for Sokol Blosser, 94 and 96. 97 at Shehalem, they hired me for a seller master position, and um, that was pretty basic stuff, just emptying, filling barrels, getting things ready for bottling. Um, and then it was kind of bounce around for, let's see, I did 2000, let's see, 97 Shehalem, 98 uh, Shehalem, 99 at Domain Serene, just for harvest, 2000 at Tory Moore, and that was when I was, you know, doing a lot of other things, so it was pretty seasonal. 01, I worked for Patty Green for harvest and prep, and then 02, I went back to Tory Moore. And with three, I went out in the vineyard for Rex Hills Management Company. I was mainly driving tractor. Um, when it was too wet, I'd be on the line crew. And 04 was Adelsheim. And 05, I wound up at Coleman Vineyards. And he had me um, driving tractor in the vineyard and working about 50-50 in the cellar. Um, and that was, uh, I did all the pruning for Coleman's, those let's see, 05 through 09, so I was like five years with that operation. Um, 
It's a small operation though, and they had a hard time keeping me busy enough. Um, in the cellar during off season, uh, there was a lot of downtime, and it would be you know some labeling as orders would come in, but it wasn't steady enough. And I got married and had some kids, and I needed more work. Um, and during that time, I had lost a lot of my part-time relationships. They ended up high, a lot of those places that I'd been working for part-time grew and filled that position that I had been kind of mm -hmm. angling for for years. And somebody else would come in and get it. I just took years. Um, so let's see, 2010, I ended up at Northwest Wine Company. 11 at Remy's for Remy Wines, 11 and 12. Remy Wines, and then <laughs> in 2013, there was a crazy project with Lady Hill where there was some sort of dispute with the owners and they were arguing about who was gonna be in production at the facility. It was the Owen Rowe facility before that and Owen Rowe stayed in production, but Lady Hill had a whole bunch of fruit come in and process and they had no place to do it. And so we poured a slab outside a 60 by 40 foot slab surrounded by a construction site where they were in the process of building a new winery right next to the old winery. So while I've got cranes and electricians and all sorts of construction going on like right there, I'm trying to drive a forklift right here with a 60 mile an hour gale and rain blowing in my face. Um, outside the whole time I had a press on this slab and I had a generator on the slab and I had a pressure washer on the slab and I had a sorting line on the slab and I couldn't drive off the slab with my forklift because it was I would sink in the gravel and so everything had to be set on the slab by a tractor so I had a tractor over here and then over there there's a couple shipping containers that the fruit would get deposited in overnight by my dad <laughs> because there wasn't anyone. There was just me and the winemaker. And we had this meeting, like, how are we gonna get the grapes? The grapes are in Washington. And at this point, the winemaker had been driving back and forth, but we were in production, not just at this one slab, that's just where we were processing the reds. After the reds got processed, then they got shipped to Adia and Medici, and the whites were being processed at the Carlton Winemaker's studio, and the barrels were being stored at Amity and Coelho, so I, I, I would process the grapes and send them to Adia for fermentation and then I'd go back to Adia and pick them up and bring them back for pressing and then I'd go to Amity and pick up some barrels and barrel them down and then take the barrels and take them back to Amity to store and all this big and it was happening at all of these locations all around the valley and it was it was amazing <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> it was chaos and it was uh, it was but it happened, like we got 400 tons done and processed and into barrels and everything was cool. It was a nightmare, but like at the end of it, we, nobody got hurt and I mean, we had a couple attempts that were trying to help us, but it was just so chaotic and I was just not capable of managing them at that skill level, at my skill level. like. In 2013, I had nine years in, um, or no, and more than that. I, I was a veteran, but like nothing could prepare you for that. <laughs> nothing could prepare you for that. Um, so 13 came and went. Uh, 14, I ended up button heads with the winemaker and went my way. 
I ended up going to work for my friend at, well, I'm at Crossflow doing um, filtration for about five years. And that was pretty sweet. I would work harvest for Lang during that period. Um, but Crossflow filtration was a whole other aspect of the winemaking process that I was really interested to learn about. Mm -hmm. um, the effects of filtration on wine and on the machine. Um, with a cross-flow filter, it's a permanent media, so you don't get rid of any pads or anything. You just have to remove the proteins and solids from the media and go on to the next place. Hmm. So it was, it was pretty interesting learning the chemistries involved with releasing proteins from plastic filter media membranes. and you know, it, was, it was cool stuff to learn. I'm curious about that. That's obviously a, it's a big change. All these years of production and viticulture, and 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 all, suddenly you're in that aspect of it. So I'm curious what what your experience had you prepared for working with Crossflow, and, and and what you what you saw as kind of your role working there, working working with the industry. Yeah, it was. I think it was really helpful having a, a big background in wine production because I it helps you to recognize the importance and, and how much work has gone into getting the wine to the place where it's at when it's ready for filtration. You, you aren't just presented with, with uh, it's not a, a final product yet, but it's had so much work put into it that, and you could really mess it up mm -hmm. if you don't do the filtration right. And so to understand just how much pressure there is to get it right, I think helped. Um, and just how valuable the stuff is to these people. Like, there's really small production wineries out there that if the machine holds 15 gallons and you lose what's in the machine, that's a big chunk of the whole production. And so you have to be very careful to get every drop. And, and we're, I was like that before I, I went into cross flow. You know, people would, would put, they'd make, th that was a big part of the job is make sure that there's no drips, make sure that nothing's leaking, make sure that you, you save what's left in the hose and what's left in the wand and what's left in the valve and, and you don't let anything hit the floor. Mm -hmm. You know, put a glass there if nothing else, you know, save it. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think that had a big role in, in, in being an effective cross-flow tech. <coughs> what did you see as, how, were you surprised by people who were, who were using cross-flow or how they were using cross-flow? Was there anything kind of surprising to you about the, its role in the industry? It was neat to watch it increase in popularity. Like, um, it was not a thing when I first started in the 90s. All filtration was pad filtration. Um, and then when Corey started off with that machine, it was, it was the first one around that was a mobile kind of thing. And um, it was neat to see it be adopted. Um, now I'm working in a winery and we have our own cross-flow machine and I, I would never go back to any other kind of filtration. It's all the other kinds of filtration are so laborious. You frequently have to make multiple passes and, and um, they're difficult to prepare the filter pads in such a way that they don't impart any flavor. Um, if you don't do it properly, you can make your wine taste papery mm -hmm. and you can really rack a batch. Um, Crossflow never does that. 
we have to be really careful to get all of our, you know, we clean it with citric acid and stuff like that. We have to thoroughly flush it with water. But once you've flushed it out, there's no taste impact and you're just removing solids and microbes. And it's, it's amazing how uh, gentle it is on the wine. There's really no impact to the wine on quality. Mm -hmm. In fact, you could even say it improves the quality because it removes some of the negatives, or it can. So what led you to leave there for something else? Well, working with a close friend can be difficult. I, th I think that's all I want to say about that. <laughs> it was time to go. We did it. We had a great run, and it was time to go. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up moving on to Patton Valley and then Results Partners back into the vineyard, and now I'm at Left Coast. And so at Left Coast now, or at Patton Valley before, was it back to kind of the hybrid role, or was it more was it more of a set role? It's been pretty set in the in the cellar now. Um, I did three years for Results Partners in the vineyard, and I was having a problem with my eyes. It turns out I, I thought it was from all the dust and stuff, but it turns out I was allergic to my contacts the whole time. Like I got contacts in 2015, it took years and years, and I, I would go around by the end of the day, I was like squinting and I couldn't tolerate light. And it's getting dangerous for me to drive the tractor in the field. And it's very dusty and you really need to, there's only a couple inches off of the vine row. It's dangerous enough as it is. Um, I had a tractor brakes fail on me while I was in front of it and I, almost got run over and broke my ankle when the mower went over my ankle. Uh, and that freaked me out a lot, being like, oh, wow, at any moment these things could fail. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you think like that, though, you can save yourself, right? If you just assume that your brakes don't work, you're just like, okay, so I don't park on a hill, or if I do park on a hill, put it in reverse and turn off the engine. It's not going for it. It's, it's in reverse. Just little things like that where you learn like not to trust anything. You just have to do the thing that makes it so that it can't fail. Mm -hmm. You know, so that way, you don't go underneath the thing that's lifted way up in the air because the hydraulics will fail. You know, and if it's up in the air and you got to go underneath it, set a ladder or a freaking stack of pallets or something underneath it that's taller than you. You know, so that you won't be crushed if it when it does fail, because eventually everything fails. Every hose is about to break. You never know when. Every bottle is about to break. We used recycled glass at Amity when I worked there, summer of '99, and we were labeling it. And they had this ancient labeling machine that used hot glue and a series of gears, and it would roll the bottle on its side. You set the thing in there and it goes clank between a couple of brass rollers. And sometimes you'd set it in there and the bottle would just shatter, just with the lightest touch, because it had been recycled and you don't know what's happened to it before you get it. And the machine would, you know, it had hot glue on the bottom of it and now it's got hot glue and glass shards and wine. And so the, the wine cools off the glue and makes it get hard and flip all over the gears. And now it's full of glass shards and it's spinning and it's hot. And the only thing that takes it off is like xylene or super, you know, toxic chemicals. And it's hot 
And so you've got to scrape it off with this razor blade and sit here with xylene in your gloves and, and it's summer and it, it, the fumes and the, um, the locals in Amity are there as your coworkers and there was a big meth problem in Amity. <laughs> and so I've got this tweaker over here, his abused girlfriend over here. They're going at it in the background. I've got to get the glass shards out of the machine. Um, <laughs> brutal. <laughs> the 90s in, in Amity were, were tough. Mm -hmm. um, and that's your workforce, is, is the products of a neglected education and social safety net system. Like, these are your people. So how do you grow them up? You know, like you've got to hunt out the special ones. And, and that's, that's what I feel like happened with me is somebody looked on the Kelly templates and said, oh, hey, there's one, there's a knot dummy. Let's get, grab him. Because you know, there weren't a lot of people around that all the best and brightest from Mac High, phew, get the hell out of McMinnville. Mm -hmm. If you've got, unless there's something wrong, right? Unless you've, you've got an injury or emotional trauma or something goes wrong in your life, you leave. Um, so I was, yeah, it, there's a lot of people that were a lot of questionable workforce, let's just put it that way. And which was, a, it's always a challenge for a winemaker because the winemakers would come in, these are talented people from around the world that are coming here to practice their craft and they're like, okay, who am I gonna get to help me? And like, oh shit, there's nobody. It's kind of tough. Well, here's about your, we talked about your skill set already and obviously you've, you've worked a lot of places, a lot of, a lot of different roles. Um, tell me about what you were sort of looking for at this point. Now that you've done, you've done it all, you're coming out of, the, of Crossville, you're looking, you were looking for, what were you looking for as you kind of took the next step? Were you looking for something specific? Really just kind of stability. You know, like now that I've gotten the training and skill set I needed to be able to walk the walk, you know, it's crazy. I spent the first 10 years, you know, pretty aware that I didn't know what I needed to know. Then after about 10 years in, you start thinking, okay, I'm competent. And then once I got to CrossFlow, you know, 20 years into the thing, I'm like, wow, you know, I really don't know. You know, and now I, I'm, I think I have a handle on all the things that I don't know. Um, and what I do know, I think I know what I know, right? <laughs> I, I've got a really good handle on pressing and I've got a really good handle on cooperage and barrel aging and, and a pretty good handle on bottling and various closures and stuff. But what I'm looking for now is really just stability in a business model. I wanna be a part of a of a business model that has it in their business model to create living wage jobs. You know, I, there's a lot of places where I've worked for where their business model didn't include any living wage jobs other than an owner. And even that owner was a little iffy on his credit and maybe this business isn't gonna be a living wage job for 20 years. You know, maybe he's gonna just go into debt and refi and refi and refi and refi for 20 years, and that's his plan. And if he's paying me more than the poverty wage that I'm getting, then it just moves him back, and that's not his plan. You know, so like, I'd work for years and years and years, putting myself in further and further and further and further in debt, because every day you go to work for a non-living wage, you're not living. You're either going into debt or your family is 
-hmm. not getting fed or clothed or something is not, some need is not getting met. Which means I'm subsidizing these businesses, right? If I'm going into debt and you're making a profit, then that is me giving you money. And thinking about that for a lot of years makes, made me really not feel very good about it. And I wanna make sure that while well, if I'm not being started at a living wage, because who does that? Who starts anyone at a living wage? Nobody starts it. At least have a conversation with people like, so what's the plan on moving me? What do I need to do to get there? You know, do you, is there a there there? Like, do you ever plan on paying me a living wage? Or is your plan to move me from 15 to 18? Living wage is 25 around here. That's a big freaking difference. And like, you can give me a buck and a half raise and that's a pretty big raise in the wine industry. Usually it's a quarter, quarter a year, just to keep you coming back. A lot of years it's nothing. They're like, yeah, we lost half the crop this year. We're not giving anyone any raises. I've heard that. Um, not getting a raise when you're fighting inflation and you're already substandard is, it's a slap in the face. Mm -hmm. Most workers don't see it that way. Most workers say, you don't like it, go get a different job. This is a good job. Um, in the vineyard, they work six days a week. They don't get overtime. They do 10 hour days. 60 hours a week is 20 hours that would be overtime pay, and it's not. So there's, you have to work 60 hours to get what somebody else would make in, in 50. It works, it's how it works out. And it, it's just not fair, and it's the hardest part of the job. Um, most of what I do is the hardest part of the job. <laughs> Lifting barrels is not easy. Um, Hanging off of a catwalk and dropping down onto the top of a stainless steel tank in your rubber boots is not easy or safe or reasonable, but that's the way they do it. The tank doesn't reach all the way to the top of the catwalk. You gotta get on the top of the tank to open the lid. You can get off by doing a little jump and pulling yourself up onto the catwalk, swing your legs. If you can't do a pull up, you can't work in the wine industry. Or you can't do that job in the wine industry. You know, you might be in the tasting room or you might be um, doing sales or something like that. But if, if somebody's gotta clean that tank and somebody's gotta get on top of it and you have to do it every night <laughs> during harvest. And you know, I was 94 and I was 18 and that was the same day they were teaching me how to drink whiskey. You know, <laughs> they're like, okay, take your shot. You're good, you're steady. Okay, we're gonna go go up on that tank. And I'm still here, you know, but there's, there's a couple other guys that aren't, you know, and we used to do a lot of cowboy shit that I won't do in my cellar anymore. You know, I, I, I have kids of my own now and I don't want to have to tell someone's parent, you know, or be like, yeah, something happened. You know, it, it's just, it, it's, it's too much. I love my kids too much. And I know that every single one of these, you know, cellar rats has got somebody that would be really pissed if I took a reckless risk with their bodies. So for both of the kind of the working conditions and for the, the living wage, have you seen improvements in that? In your oh, time? absolutely, absolutely. It is no longer unheard of to have a goal to create living wage jobs. At least it's a goal. 
like I had never heard of anybody who thought that it was their responsibility to create a living wage job. But now that mindset is out there that like if you don't have a business, if your business depends on exploiting others, if your business is dependent on paying sub-living wages, that maybe you don't have a business, you have a scam. And that mentality and that mindset is, is out there. You know, there's a lot of employers who won't pay exploitive wages to anyone. There's not a lot, but there are, it, it's out there, you know, it's growing. So yeah, things have changed. So I'm curious now, you mentioned you're at Left Coast Sellers. Um, you've worked a, a lot of different people, a lot of different styles, a lot of different, tell me about um, sort of developing relationships in the industry, both with colleagues, with supervisors, with, with uh, people around the industry. Uh, what do you look for in a place where you're working? What do you look for from supervisor? And, and how do you sort of uh, see your role in, in fitting into a, a, someone else's sort of business model? Main thing I look for is turnover. You know, there's a few places out there where they're constantly adver advertising help wanted, and so I don't go there. Um, I've never gotten a job from anywhere that has advertised that they were hiring. The only jobs I've ever gotten have been by walking on the site, go around the back to the tank farm, find someone who's running a pump, shake their hand and say, hey, what's going on? Do you need any help? And that is how I've led to getting jobs. The jobs that I have cultivated, um, and one, it's usually someone that I knew socially, you know, or professionally, or at Left Coast, um, I'm working for Joe Wright, who I met at the first um, class at Chemeketa. We took those classes together, and we were both students, and he was, we were actually both working at Willamette at the time. Um, I did my Willamette, my period at Willamette back in 2000, like eight months or so. And, um, that's where I met Joe Dobbs. That's a funny story too, my deal with Joe Dobbs. We, he hired me in 2000 um, as a probationary position. He created a barrel room manager. And he was like, yeah, we'll evaluate after six months. Six months came and went and I'm like, hey, how about my review? Are we gonna continue this? And August comes around, he's like, no, not gonna continue this position, bye. And so I go, the very next day, I went to Tory Moore and winemaker there, Bob McRitchie, hired me. He's like, oh, yeah, we need someone right now. Started me up right, right then. And two weeks later, Bob McRitchie comes to me and says, Ben, I'm going to be a professor at North Carolina University somewhere. And uh, new winemaker is going to be Joe Dobbs. <laughs> Joe comes in and he's like, Ben, okay. Clean Slate is a whole new operation, a smaller production, and I need you to do a especially good job because I'm gonna start my new label and you're gonna be keeping track of my wines for me here at Tory Moore. So, went to work with Joe Dobbs again after he had just fired me a couple weeks earlier. <laughs> that was kind of fun. But it was, we had a great time. You know, I never had a problem with Joe. Like, it was a bad fit or whatever at Willamette. He was, I wasn't, I don't know. I don't know if it was him, if it was me, whatever. We had a great relationship at Tory Moore, and then 
I really wanted to learn from Patty Green because that was the whole reason I went to Tory Moore. I was surprised to see Bob McCritchie when I showed up at Tory Moore. I thought it was Patty Green's place. Apparently, she had moved on, started her own label that year. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, let me go and, and pick her brain. And so I went to work for Patty in 01. I don't know what made me decide it was a good idea to go back to Tory Moore in 02. <laughs> um, because by that time, it, things were really getting crazy with them in that facility. They were outgrowing it, and it was, it was a circus. Um, and the new winemaker was a pup, and he didn't have a lot of, he, I, I think, I don't know if he felt threatened by me or what, he, but he didn't want me around there. And he was probably pretty smart, because he probably wouldn't have that job if I, if I was still there. Um, I ended up having a, a minor ding on a forklift. Like I, I think I had a tent pole with the, with the ears of the forks because we were doing harvest under a mm. tent on 8th Street. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally illegal. We'd, we'd like actually take the manhole cover off and put a grate over it to like send the grapes down. <laughs> the city would get so pissed. And um, I ended up leaving during harvest, uh, October. He took me off the forklift and so like, okay, you're grounded. Like, oh, I'm not useful anymore. And um, Rob Stewart was doing his first year that year at Big Fire, and he only had one other dude because harvest was so late that year. Um, it was 02. And we, we had fruit coming in in the end of October. And this massive freeze happened, and all of his people had signed up to work September and the beginning of October, and so his people had left, and it was just Rob and Ben. Ben Fromm was the guy helping him. And Rob was doing all he could do to manage the ferments, and Ben Fromm was emptying tanks, and then they had me pressing whites, and as soon as I get the whites pressed full, then I'd go back to running reds, and I'd fill up fermenters, and then press whites and then press whites and fill fermenters and that's all I was doing until four in the morning. Um, Rob would come in and he'd just shut off the machine. He'd say, go home, come back. Come back after you've slept a little. I'd come back at 7 a.m. Like He's like, don't even hose it off. We're gonna keep, just keep grape juice on it. We're gonna put grape juice on it in three hours. Don't even freaking worry about it. We're gonna run this machine. The bearing's starting to squeal and the machine's howling, just howling so loud. You could hear it across town, I, so loud. He's like, don't worry about it. Just keep it wet with juice. Just keep juice on the thing and run it till it quits. We, get, we don't have another machine. There's no other option, just run it. And we ended up, we, we had, 140 tons delivered in two days. And I could do like a eh, ton and a half an hour or so. Because <laughs> I'm trying to run the whites press while processing reds and the auger doesn't really feed the fruit through without creating a jam. So I have to get off the forklift and get in there with a PVC pipe to shove the shit through the hopper by hand, all of it. Once in a while, the PVC pipe gets caught in there, comes back and punches me in the face. Three in the morning. After a while, I got smart and put a little piece of foam over the end of the pipe so that it, at least it wouldn't cut me when it punched me in the face. Um, that was a rough year. That was a really rough year. It's October 31st and we're running Pinot Gris. We had it just stacked in that breezeway between the two buildings at Big Fire. He's got that way house and then there's that breezeway. It was just packed solid with 
dozens and dozens of tons of Pinot Gris. Yeah, but it kept for days because it was sub-freezing outside. It, the fruit stayed fresh four or five days, just running it. I'm curious about sort of the, the larger sort of ramifications of that, of the idea of you, you spend all this time preparing for each year's harvest and then it just sort of happens and it happens how it's going to happen mm -hmm. and you have very little control over it. So tell me about, did you ever have anything go according to plan or is it every year kind of a seat of your pants, make it up as you go along? You know, every year is quite unique. You know, whether it's because of this, I, I did, I, I haven't counted it up, but I think it's something like 12 out of my 25 harvests were the first harvest in that facility. So I became something of a startup specialist. <laughs> a canary in a coal mine? Yeah, where people would be like, oh, wow, this problem needs to be ironed out or, you know. Um, it's been really nice at Left Coast where they have worked out a lot of those kinks over the last 15 years and or whatever. They've, they've gotten their system dialed in. But yeah, it seems like every year, is a different set of challenges, whether it's, oh, there's no citric acid this year, or, oh, you can't get any sugar this year, or this year it's all teeny berries, or this year we have so many grapes that we don't know what to do with, like all of, we ended up and at Youngberg Hill, while I was working for Coleman, I was also working for Youngberg Hill, and um, we ended up picking into kiddie pools and garbage bags and the back of a pickup. Like, we were just like, we need something to put all these grapes in because you couldn't get boxes, couldn't get any picking bins. Um, you never know what it's gonna be, whether you need extra fermenters. Um, it, that's one of the reasons why we're so collegial is that we help each other out. If, if you are out of filter pads, I don't care if you're the competing, there's no competing wineries. When somebody is in need, we help each other. Um, and, Oh, four Shehalem's press doors got stolen by, you know, scrap metal or people. And so everybody just took it upon themselves to fill, to press, to press Shehalem's grapes for them. You know, I was at Adelsheim that year and Shehalem's fruit came in one morning and I'm like, what is Shehalem's fruit doing here? Oh, well, Shehalem can't press. So we're all pressing Shehalem's fruit, which is what we do. Um, it doesn't matter whether you need people or whether you need supplies or equipment or whatever will help you get it done. But, you know, being prepared is, is really all you can do. You, you're prepared for chaos is what you're prepared for. And so you're going to prepare with all this stuff and some years the chillers don't even get used. Some years this doesn't get used or that doesn't get used. But you have it all and it's all clean and it's all ready. And that's what is by the book or routine or like what you expect is you expect to be, you expect it to be different. Um, you can look for similarities and be like, yeah, this is, and we do certain things the same. You know, we, every year we pick the grapes, although guess not, guess not, not every year we do. Some years you let it hang and you're just like, no, we're not going to waste any time on it because it's just going to cost us money. Mm -hmm. um, Seems like we always put them in fermenters, but like, I don't know. I've seen guys, they took the barrels apart and they put them in the barrels. 
Um, there's, there's so many different techniques for different situations that it's hardly ever the case that we do it the same every year, or that we do anything, for sh that we can guarantee anything is gonna be like last year. Um, it's possible that we could change everything. It seems like, I, I mean, you just have to be r resilient and uh, responsive. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the not every year grapes get picked. Obviously, 2020, a year where not all the grapes got picked. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your experiences in 2020 and the, the where what you what you were working on at that point and kind of uh, your reaction and and. Um, changes you had to make, both pandemic-related and, and obviously 2020 harvest-related? Yeah, um, it was really interesting, because being in the vineyard, the way it just marched on, like there was no stopping it for anything. Um, now, that, that might have been a little bit of my own personal mindset and the teams that I was with, because um, I, I did get some feedback later that said during that heat wave, I was the only one irrigating because it was I was night I was operating at night, and they're like, no one else was geared up to operate at night. You were the only one in the whole system who thought of that. I'm like, yeah, well, I wasn't going out 120 degrees, no freaking way. I have headlamps for this. Um, so I was operating irrigation. Um, as far as the pandemic goes. Yeah, we. I, <laughs> it was so cool. I heard that there was going to be a mask giveaway at the fairgrounds that the National Guard and OSU had coordinated with some of the distillers to get sanitizer and masks out there. And I saw a line of cars, and I'm, and I'm like, okay, well, I better go do that. And they're like, well, how many people are in your company? I'm like, oh, well, I work for RP. There's 300 of us. And so they just put... 2,000 masks in the back of my truck. It might have been 10,000. I don't know, it's like two huge cases of masks, cases of sanitizer. I'm like, really? And like, yeah, they had us hooked up. And so I went to headquarters and sh rolled into headquarters with all this shit in the back of my truck. They hadn't even heard about the handout at, at the at headquarters. They no, Nobody knew anything. They're like, where'd you get all this? I'm like, National Guard, baby, they hooked us up. <laughs> and so that was enough for that's to get through a long time. And, and all the crews were able to be masked up and everything just because I happened to hear about a, a random giveaway. Um, it was crazy. They didn't ask any questions or anything. They're just like, what, 300 people? There you go. Fucking mask them all up. It was great. So we had masks and sanitizer and ways to keep people, keep the bathrooms clean. And, you know, we always have hand washing station. We always had sanitized stuff because people want to be able to eat lunch and, and you're out in the field and there's all sorts of chemical on your hand and everything. So we, we were always pretty good about getting people's hands clean. Um, masking. You know, I stayed behind the, the we would keep a, a, a box of fruit between us when we had picking crews and we'd be masked up and the biggest change is we weren't allowed to go help them carry the buckets, which you know, at the beginning, I w people would be respectful of that rule. But after, at the end of the day, man, like, and you're the last couple of, usually the young kids would leave at the end of the day, and there'd be like four 
old folks out there picking grapes. You're like, I'm not going to leave them out in the sun to carry their buckets up and down the rows. I don't freaking care. I'll bring out clean buckets and leave them with them, and I'll take their buckets, and I'll freaking off it a run. And you're running through an empty vineyard row. You're not going to be masked. You're not, not going to wear a mask by yourself in a vine row. <laughs> you, you know, and if it's two old people over there, you be, I'll leave your buckets here for you, and you come get them, mm -hmm. um, or you chuck them, you chuck them up to them or something. But like, we managed to to stay safe, and um, the smoke was intense. It didn't stop us. Uh, I don't think it. I, no, it didn't stop us at all. We left some fruit on the vine. There were some people that couldn't get their fruit ripe before the smoke got it, and, and they couldn't harvest anything usable. Um, it was so hit and miss, though. Some sites, the smoke just came and hung over the top, and then just over there, it would clear off every day, and, and it barely left an impact. Um, so it was really sporadic, which has got to be super frustrating for those people who, who escaped any smoke taint to have to overcome that marketing hurdle. Be like, oh, but 20 was a shit vintage for Oregon. Well, but our wine is great. You know, that was really the case at Left Coast. They, they're far enough to the west away from any smoke damage that the stuff they brought in before it got smoked, it was perfectly ripe. And there's no smoke taint in any of their mm -hmm. wines. Um, but I saw a lot of stuff from the northern parts of the Eolas and, and others that just were destroyed. And so seeing that, I mean, in the back of, one of the things they taught us early on, or what they taught me early on in my career, was that farming in Oregon is a marginal proposition, that you have to be financially prepared for a, a zero one out of every 10 years. And that's what 2020 really drove home. And, and, and there's a lot of folks that between, you know, starting in 2000 or so, with the the rise of, of so many small labels and ultra boutique kinds of folks, a lot of those people had no margin for error. And so I, I feel like 2020 is, is a big uh, separation, a boundary layer that separates folks that had the financial wherewithal to continue despite, you know, all of these setbacks. Mm -hmm. And those who didn't have the and so there's there's probably going to be a lot of brands disappearing over the next 18 months or so as the ramifications from losing an entire vintage worth of sales. Now, you can be resourceful and scramble and pick pick up, you know, a, a few hundred cases here and a few hundred cases there and keep your brand alive. And and that's where the art of the negotiant comes in. You know, find some good wine to mix with your bad wine to make an, a sellable wine mm -hmm. and live to fight another day. You might lose your, your vineyard designation. You might lose your appellation designation. You might even lose your vintage designation. But you'll be able to make a product that is non-vintage, non-vineyard, non-appellation, but it's good enough to sell mm -hmm. and it keeps you going. It all just depends on the, your business model and how you how you plan on staying alive. And honestly, I'm really, really fortunate to be able to have made a career out of this and not have to worry about any of that. I, I've never had my own brand. And um, I came close, 
uh, in 2005, instead of a raise, I was given a ton of grapes. <laughs> and um, I almost bonded up and and started a brand and, and tried to sell it legit. And after I thought about it for a while, I'm like, you know, here's the startup costs, and I do it every year. And like, what's my skill set? Am I really that? I'm not an organizational um, bureaucrat. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a accountant. I'm not a paperwork person. I don't like paperwork at all. Um, that's not my thing. And I know that I wouldn't be good at running that kind of business, and so I just, you know, sold it to friends and family on the side under the table, and people made donations to my. It was right about the same time I had my first baby. And they're like, oh, yeah, this guy needs money. <laughs> <laughs> I like wine as a wine as a fundraiser for babies. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't tell the OLCC. I'm sure, this, I'm sure the statute's over at this point. Yeah. Hope that they can come get you. Uh, so we talked. You talked earlier about the the collegiality of, of the industry and the, the not, not even like you say not even a question asked. We're, we're just going to help help help. We're going to help if you need. Yeah. Uh, in, in the time you've been in the industry, has have you seen that change, or have you seen have, have other parts of the industry that you kind of got to know changed? What what are the what are the biggest changes in the past twenty years of Oregon Wine? I. Th Maybe it's changed. I don't. I've heard people say that it's changed, but I, I, I think that with. I think that's the lower level guys who've never really had a chance to call on it. They they think that, so and so is the competition because they've never. Needed so and so to help them. They're just like, oh well, so and so is selling more for more money than we are, and so they must be our competition. But they don't know that if they were to ever really need it, that that supposed competitor would be right there. Um, I don't think it's really changed. I think that some there's been a lot more people coming in, and so they don't know what they're coming into. But I don't think that changes what they're coming into, mm -hmm. right? Like when when they have a problem, they will be surprised to learn. They think that they're all alone, but they're not alone. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it, that, that's the biggest difference. Is there's a whole bunch more people out here that have no idea how much support there really is for them. Mm -hmm. So, what does the industry look like to you now compared to when you got started? Now it's beginning to fulfill the promises that were made in the 90s. Like, the year I started in 94 was the year Archery Summit broke ground and the year Domain Druin broke ground. And those were watershed moments when big French investment starts coming here, a house with centuries of history starts coming here, when big Napa development starts coming here. Um, the people who had come in the 80s were hoping that would happen. And when it happened in the 90s, I said, see, look, that's what the future of Oregon is, is big investment and jobs. And you, as an 18-year-old, should pay attention to this, is what I was told. You should pay attention to this, and you should take advantage of it. And if you work hard, there's opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it was maybe oversold to me. Um, Roland Souls told me, 10 years before you can make a living in the wine industry. It's always going to, you better be ready to be poor for 10 years. Well, I'm 25 years in, and I'm still not making much of a living. You know, it's, 
it's pretty tough. So it might have been oversold, and it's, and it's taking longer to get the level of investment that you would hope. But who would have predicted that the future would be this way? You know, we've had a lot of unpredictables. And if you graph it, it's a pretty steady increase in number of jobs and in the amount of revenues generated by the wine industry for the state. So it's going about what I expected. Maybe not my wildest, most optimistic hopes, but you know, this is probably a, a pretty realistic growth curve for an industry that is sustainable. I'm sure there's been little spikes and peaks of, of indie wine brands, um, but if you look, and, and it's been crazy too, even some of the mainstays like Willamette Valley Vineyards, if you look at their production levels, they've oscillated wildly. You know, I think they're just now getting back to the production levels that they had in 2000. Mm -hmm. Maybe not even quite that high. I think in 2000 they were over 350,000 cases, and they slashed it to less than 100,000 at the in the 08, 09 recession. Um, so things fluctuate wildly, mm -hmm. but the brands remain. You know, Willamette Valley Vineyard is still standing. Um, Sokol Blosser is still standing. They're not going out of business anytime soon. Mm -hmm. They might make more or less money in this year or that year. They might lose a little money this year. But those vineyards are going to be there for centuries. Mm -hmm. And someone's going to figure out a way to make it pay. One way or another. It's all too big to fail, right? The, the banks have loaned them too much money to walk away from it. And so it might be the banks owning it all at the end of the day because it's been mismanaged by this guy or mismanaged by that guy. But somebody's going to get their money out of that. And they're going to count on technicians like me to, to do it. This was kind of what was impressive to me as you were kind of going down the rundown of the places you've worked. Those, those places are all still here. Like all those brands yeah. still exist. All those buildings yeah. are still here. It's, yeah. It's amazing. I don't think I've worked for anybody that's out of business now, now that I think about it. That's pretty incredible. What do you think? What do you yeah. Think? Yeah. Well, because I, I, I made it my my goal when I started off, when, when we, in 97, and Corey and I looked at all those wineries we were going to stop at, and one day we hit 15 in a day, we selected those pretty carefully, and we, we had a strategy of let's only work for places that would be considered high-end. You know, I, we'd both done a couple of vintage at Sokol Blosser, and I'm like, you know, that's a little marginal, and we have to develop ourselves as a brand. And brand Ben needs to be associated with these other brands that elevate my status. And so, yes, I know you're making quality wine, Sokol Blosser, but I'm not gonna work for you because your market perception is not as high as these others. So I'm not gonna diss your product in public. I'm not gonna say to my peers that your product, but I have to listen to the consumers opinions, even if it's a harebrained opinion, it matters because it affects me as brand Ben. And so I, that's, that's what drew me to Shehalem, mm -hmm. is because they were a boutique winery and I wanted to be a boutique person. Not necessarily that I make small amount of wine, but that I do high-end stuff. Because I went to, Domaine, or I went to um, Chateau Saint-Michel up in Everett, Washington, where two and a half million cases are put out by 12 people. We had in one facility at the time I was there as much wine as the entire state of Oregon. But I wanted to be a part of that because one, it's a union operation. And 
And that was another crazy story too. I just go to my fiance at the time, I, it was 2003, and I'm like, hey, I'm starving to death here in the Willamette Valley. Anywhere I can work in the world and make more money than here. I can work anywhere in the world making wine. Any country, any state, where do you want to go? Anywhere's better than here. And she had family up in Everett, Washington. She's like, let's go to Washington. I made one phone call, get hired at St. Michelle. One phone call, get an interview, go up there, one interview, and they hired me, no, just, yeah. They're like, okay, it's a tough job though. It starts off paying triple what we pay here in Oregon. Good money, but you cannot be late. Not one minute late. I called them 20, you know, I worked there a couple months, called them 20 minutes before my shift, solid stuck in traffic. Hey, I might be a little late. I clocked in at 7.01 and alarm bells go off <laughs> and security shows up. They say, get your shit. Kidding? Like, no, dude, you've already called in sick twice. Third strike, you're out. I'm like, wow. Yeah, that was my last day. My fiance broke up with me the day before that. <laughs> Sunday night, I got broke up with. Monday morning, I go in late to work. Bam, you're fired. I'm like, that's a sign. <laughs> Time to go home. <laughs> that seems like extreme rejection by Washington. Fuck. It was good money. I was making eight bucks an hour here, making 22 an hour up there for the same job. So we probably need a union down here. But you know, I don't want to drive more wineries out of business. You know, their business model is based on exploitative wages. Like, that's an ethical decision. And like, I can be a part of it or not be a part of it or whatever. Like, that's, that's, that's on his conscience. I'm not gonna say it's illegal to pay exploitive wait it's a tough it's tough because it's a tough business and you know it's not a fair marketplace when france can sell their bottles for ten thousand dollars a bottle and people bellyache when we charge a hundred and it's like our wine's just as good and that's what it takes to be able to pay a living wage is you got to have some it's a status symbol anyway. I know these ultra-rich bajillionaires don't care. They, they'd be happy to pay, buy another two, three bottles of wine to pay for my salary for the year. Fine, 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 fine. You know, like, it's just like, you gotta, you gotta make the ask. You're never gonna get $10,000 a bottle if you don't ask for it. And there's no $10,000 bottle of Oregon wine on the market because it seems absurd. But it doesn't seem absurd if it's Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. You know, or if it's fine art. Fine art sells for $30,000 a painting all the damn time. Why, why are those artists more valuable than, than we are? You know, like, I get it. I'm not the artist. I'm not the winemaker. But I'm a craftsman, you know, and I've got decades of perfecting my craft. And I know things about things that, <laughs> that are not commonly known. <laughs> So what comes next then for Oregon wine, given all that we've talked about today? What, what, is, what is the industry going to look like coming, coming up? Hmm. Well, every year it's a record harvest in terms of planted acres. So I think that we can continue to see the, the curve go up. It's just going to become more and more of a mainstay for our economic base. It's not our number one agricultural product. It's not even our number two agricultural product. I think it might be number three. 
Um, but it will probably one day displace a couple of more things. We might someday make more money off of wine grapes than we do off of hazelnuts. I don't know. I'd like to see us make more money off of wine grapes than we do grass seed. I'd like to see the vineyards um, become the stewards of our, of our watershed. Uh, we, use, we make a lot of ponds and that can save a lot of water from running into the ocean and save our soils. And I'd really like to see the, the viticulturists work with the grass farmers more in the future and, and take some of the sustainable agricultural techniques that we've developed in the vineyard and move them to other types of agriculture. I'd really like to see some sort of, if not a legislation, but a norm that every farm has a pond. I'd really like to see a pond on every farm to provide resilience for that river so that we can tear down some of the dams and so that we can still have the water get caught and be released in the summer and so that the fish can live and the erosion can be limited in the winter. We need to do, we need to spread, there's a lot of um, sustainable farming going on in the vineyards and it seems like the regular flatland farmers just look at us as a bunch of hippies on the hill. And I'd like to mainstream a lot of that stuff. Um, some of it is just real simple as far as the ponding thing, um, but there's also more complicated crop rotational things and we need to really look at the kinds of crops we're growing. Um, my freshman geography teacher at Mac High told me that if we moved all the people and grass farms out of the Willamette Valley, we could feed grown up food for the whole world in this one valley, but it's all grass seed and grass seed doesn't feed anyone. I don't know that vineyards feed anyone, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're better because we're vineyards than grass seed. Vineyards are not really food. It's not, it's not food, it, it's, it's a luxury product. You know, I don't claim to be morally superior because we're growing grapes as opposed to grass seed. They're both pretty much useless. But at least we've come up with some ways to do it sustainably. Um, Probably come the apocalypse, we're not going to be farming wine grapes. We'll probably be growing carrots and wheat or whatever, fava beans or something productive and nutritious. But we don't need to be quite so reckless with the water and the soil. And I, and I think that the future will, will hopefully have other agriculturalists looking to the wine industry for leadership. What about for your own future? What are you looking ahead to? Just trying to keep my body intact long enough to get enough money to retire. And it's not looking good. <laughs> it's not looking good. I have no idea. I don't see myself starting a label. I've had a few people ask me to, um, but at wine school I was told never make a drop of wine for anybody until they're screaming at you to. And they're paying you in advance. You get the money up front before you make a drop. Remember that, kids. Don't go into debt to start a brand. Um, yeah, some people are quietly asking me to make them some wine, but until they put money in my hands and say, do it now, brother, um, I'm not doing anything like that. I'll probably just, you know, keep 
doing my thing day by day. I don't have very good plans. My plan is to just keep making wine and hopefully they'll pay me more and more over time and I can keep a roof over my head. I told my wife I was not going to be a rich man ever and if you're going to marry me, you're going to probably be looking at a life of what you see is what you get. So I'll drive a 20-year-old car and live in a rental. <laughs> That's probably my life. But I love what I do every day, you know, so I love it. I come home, I, I leave work and I'm reluctant to leave and I'm excited to go and love it while I'm there. They send me home with cases of wine and bottling, so it's okay. Once in a while I get a fancy dinner, fancy lunch, something, you know, I get to go to wine festivals once in a while or do something. There's a lot of side perks that make it a, a reasonably okay life. They sent me to New Zealand once. I get to do a lot of the things that rich people get to do. You know, I just don't have to deal with any of the hassles. <laughs> All that pesky money. <laughs> That's, I like that's good. Uh, all right. It's all the questions that I have for cool. you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? I think I got it. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, for coming and joining us and sharing your stories with us. And uh, we'll let you off the hook. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.